been walking our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, so, if you're here for the first time, you have plopped into the middle of a series on this book, and uh, which isn't the easiest thing to do, but uh, let me try to get you oriented to where we are. Uh, in Revelation 4 and 5, there's like a double vision of God's heavenly throne room. And there in the vision, there's one who is sitting on the throne. And in his hand, there is a scroll. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And there's no one who can open the scroll, and that's very sad. But then suddenly, there's one who is introduced, and he is able to open the scroll, and that is the Lamb. Of course, referring to Jesus. And then he proceeds in chapter 6 to begin to open the seals that are on the scroll. And as the Lamb opens the first four seals, he unleashes destructive forces upon the earth. Forces of conflict and famine and disease and death. And then we come to the fifth seal. And when he opens the fifth seal, we see the souls of believers who have died crying out to God, How long before you avenge our blood? And they are told that they need to wait a little longer. And then comes the sixth seal. And that's where we are this morning. When the Lamb opens the sixth seal. We're in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The, moon, the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, this passage is easily broken into two parts. Both of them relating, relating to this great day of judgment which comes at the end of time. The first half is the deconstruction of creation. There's a great earthquake, the sun becomes black as sackcloth, the full moon turns dark like blood, the stars of the sky fall to the earth. 
and the sky itself is va- it vanishes like a scroll that's rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. Now this language obviously is designed to alarm us. And yet it's language that is commonly used in the Bible. You can see it in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Joel 3, Habakkuk 3. And also in the New Testament. In, we see it in Jesus' eschatological discourse, which I talked to you about a couple weeks ago in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And even in Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. All these passages mention the same or similar phenomenon as found as we find here in Revelation 6, 12 to 17. Or 12 to 14, actually. There's the shaking of the earth or the mountains, the darkening or shaking of the moon, the stars, the sun, and heaven, the pouring out of blood. But Often, though it may have the sound of finality to it, this destruction of the cosmos language is not always used to refer to the final judgment on the last day, but to smaller preliminary judgments which point forward to the final judgment. There are, of course, many judgment days in the Bible. Noah's Ark was a judgment day. Sodom and Gomorrah was a judgment day. The story of the Exodus was a judgment day. The turning away of Sennacherib was a judgment day. Even the cleansing of the temple at the hands of Jesus was something of a judgment day. But these are only small glimpses of the final judgment day which will come at the end of history. God rearranged the cosmos to some degree in sending water in Noah's flood. In sending fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In sending the wind and parting the sea in the Exodus story. And just as Jesus deconstructed some furniture in the temple through his righteous rampage as he cleansed the temple. One day his wrath will not be confined to one small part of one building. One day it will be displayed fully and finally with no restraint. He will take his whip and dismantle the entire cosmos. And here in the sixth seal, it seems, it's speaking of this ultimate final day of God's judgment. Now let me explain to you why I think that. Actually, three reasons, but I'm going to leave two of them in the notes and just tell you one. When the sixth seal is opened and we see this daunting vision of of a great day of judgment... It seems to be a direct answer to the prayer that's offered right before it in the fifth seal. Where the people 
who have died, the saints who have died, cry out, how long before you avenge our blood? And they're told just a little bit longer. And then the next verse begins the next stage, which is this judgment day. The very next seal, the very next verses, depict the vengeance of God coming upon the opponents of his people. It's hard not to think that they're connected. And if this is God's answer to the prayer in 610, then it must be talking about the final judgment because 611 implies that all the suffering of God's people must be completed before the final judgment comes. And so that's how I take this to be, that this is depicting the final judgment. The second part of this passage is, the first part, remember, was the deconstruction of creation. The second part is the deconstruction of human confidence. The kings of the earth, this is verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So here we see, just as the creation itself was shattered, now we see human confidence being shattered. And this list of various classes of people that are being judged is very intriguing. You know, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone slave and free. You know, this is not just a random assortment of professions like butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. The first five in this list are all positions of power and prestige. Kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful. But just as the oppressed are about to rise up and cheer on this judgment of their oppressors, one more group gets added in. Everyone, slave and free. Wait, if slaves are included on this list, then the notion is dispelled that the high and mighty are the bad guys and the weak and lowly are the good guys. In fact, this last category, slave and free, is obviously designed to include everyone. It's like saying Jews and Gentiles are male and female. It involves everyone. So what are we to make of this? If the list is designed to connote all humanity, why does it begin with five categories of powerful, prominent people? Well... You remember that this judgment comes as a result of the prayer in 6.10. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Well, at this time, 
who were the ones, by and large, who were shedding the blood of God's people? It was the kings, the generals, the powerful. As it says in James 2, 6 and 7, Are not the rich ones those who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by whom you were called? So that's how the list starts, because that's the ones who are in need of, venge- of being avenged, or being, having vengeance poured on them. But so that God doesn't give the impression that only powerful people ought to fear the judgment and are in danger of judgment, it's added every person, slave and free. You see, there are poor and weak and lowly people who do not come to Christ. Though, through history, most of the Christian community has come from the humbler strata of human society. And generally, the rich and powerful are the enemies of Christ. After all, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, But it isn't absolutely true that the rich and powerful are Christ's enemies. Paul tells us that not many were wise in a worldly sense. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But not many doesn't mean not any. So, we come to this daunting and scary passage. And as a pastor and preacher of God's word, it is my job to comfort the disturbed with the precious promises of scripture. But also to disturb the comfortable with its solemn warnings. A few months ago, I was telling a liberal non-believer, and I I only say that there are certainly conservative non-believers, but this person was a liberal non-believer, that the Bible says that in the end, the earth as we know it will be destroyed, and that God will not, will create a new heavens and a new earth. The person's reaction surprised me. Isn't that a little drastic? And that response really made me think. First of all, it made me realize that to this person, the earth is the ultimate reality. Even above God, if they believe in one. This planet is our only home, our only life, our only hope. Second of all, it made me realize that this person's view of human sin is very shallow. They assume that human sin is minor. And they think that God's anger, if he's angry, ought to be minor as well, corresponding to what the level of sin is. 
And it's true that God has restrained his anger and shown much patience toward mankind. But human sin is not minor. It may appear to be minor from our perspective because our perspective is skewed by our own sin. And we're so surrounded with sin and so permeated each of us with sin that it becomes normalized in our minds and may seem like it's minor. But Revelation 6, 12 to 17 does not describe some kind of a divine temper tantrum. It is not an exaggerated reaction to the sinfulness of mankind. This is the reasonable reaction of a holy and just God to human sin. There are scenes that are given to us in Scripture to help us grasp the weightiness of sin. One of them is the cross, of course. If sin is trivial, how come it took the death of the very Son of God to cover it up? As the hymn says, if you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here you see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. The other, another picture that we're given is this very one in Revelation 6 of Christ's furious return. It teaches us about the true nature of sin. The problem is that people are afraid of all the wrong things. Liberals say, oh no, we're exploiting and destroying the planet, the only place we have to live. And that's what they're afraid of. Conservatives say, oh no, our, freedom, our freedoms are being shrewdly seized by a control-hungry government. And that's what they're afraid of. But God says, I'm the one. I am the one you should fear. One day I will unleash my anger and dismantle this whole place. And those who have resisted me I will put into a prison worse than any known on earth. Whether we like it or not, this is the way history is going to end. Jesus is going to return. He is going to dismantle the present cosmos. And he's going to bring justice down upon those who resisted him and refused him. And there's going to be nowhere for them to go. As the old spiritual says, O sinner man, where are you going to run to, O on that day? 
on that day of terror, all the things that people cling to for security, all human idols will be exposed as useless and empty. As it says in Isaiah 2, People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. When he rises... So I'm reading Isaiah 2. People shall enter the caves and rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and gold to the moles and the rats, idols which they made for themselves to worship as they enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Now, if this gives us nightmares, so be it. This is the stuff which ought to give us nightmares. This is the stuff which really poses a danger, not only here on earth, but to each human being eternally. And this is an amazing passage, amazing in its intensity, amazing in its severity, amazing in its finality, amazing in its frightfulness. But there are two more ways in which this scene painted here in the sixth seal is amazing. Two more ways that this scene is amazing. First of all, the people involved here who are fleeing in a panic. First of all, these people who are fleeing, they're not timid weak people. These are tough guys, kings, rulers, military leaders, people of power. These are the hardest people to spook. These are the people who intimidate others. These are the people who make other people shake in their boots. These are the people who have been bullying the believers, threatening them, pushing them around, falsely accusing them, treating them like trash. And now have the tables turned. They're the scared ones, running to hide. Reminds us of what Mary said. He has scattered the proud and brought down the mighty from their thrones. Other reason why this is amazing, it's it's even more startling. It's not that easy to get the lamb to be wrathful. 
It's very rare in the Bible that we see this. I think only twice during his ministry, Jesus is said to be angry. The cleansing of the temple, as I've mentioned before, and when the synagogue leaders didn't want Jesus to heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. By and large, he is so very kind and gentle compassionate and full of grace. He said he did not come to judge, but to save. And yet here in Revelation 6 and the sixth seal, he is terrifying in his wrath. Since Jesus ordinarily is so meek and mild, so slow to anger and so quick to forgive, Many people are complacent about the idea of facing him on the judgment day. But those who in the end refuse his grace and salvation, wow, he has them in full panic, as scared as it's possible to be. When he appears on judgment day, they will quickly realize how wrong they have been. They will quickly realize that though Jesus makes a wonderful friend, he makes an awful enemy. The friends of Jesus can face the wrath of anyone because they can call on the Lamb. He is their mighty fortress. In him they can hide from the wrath of bullies, enemies, bosses, parents. But where can any man hide from the wrath of the Lamb? You know, there are times in the Bible when God says to someone, I am against you. Is there any more daunting, haunting statement that one could hear than to hear God say, I am against you? You know, Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And what a precious verse that is, and what great comfort it's brought to God's people in the face of all kinds of things. But what if God is not for someone? What if God is against someone? If God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against you, who can be for you? Who can protect you? Who can shield you? No one. Another great comforting verse is Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else at all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But again, what if Jesus is against you? 
as he is against these people in Revelation 6, 7 to 12. What do you do when Jesus is against you? There's nowhere to run. It's like desperately running from a lion and running right into a bear. And then even if you finally escape and make it into your house and lean your hand against the wall to catch your breath, your hand is bitten by a viper. That may sound like a strange thing to say, but that is exactly what Amos 5.19 talks about with regard to those who are in futility trying to flee from the Lord. As Francis Thompson said in his poem, The Hound of Heaven, All things betray thee who betrayest me. In that case, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the wrath of God and from Jesus Christ our Lord. Nations rage, the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. And the anointed one breaks them with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces. Psalm 2. All we get of this now is warnings and little glimpses in life. Some of you have experienced intensely scary and frightening things. If the purpose of the Bible is to cheer us up, why in the world are there passages like this in the Bible? The purpose of the Bible, rather, is to tell us the truth about God and about ourselves. And to some extent that does cheer us up. And to some extent it terrifies us. This passage seems terrifying. But there's actually something wonderful here as well. The good news is that this scene is not happening now. This is something in the future. Right now, it's not too late. It's not too late to avoid the wrath of the one on the throne and of the Lamb. It is not too late to run to the rock who can hide us. The Lamb is still in his extending grace to his enemies mode. He has not yet shifted over to his pour out wrath on his enemies mode. But the fuse is lit. And we don't know how much of the fuse of his patience is left. But for now it's still burning. Maybe you know that deep down in your heart, 
Even though you've played along with Christianity, you've never truly welcomed Jesus into your life. Or maybe you're just stumbled upon this and are listening to it online. You have never put your faith in Christ. Maybe you're even reading this sermon in its transcript and are unacquainted with Jesus, the Son of God. It's good news for you because it's not too late. The bomb has not yet gone off. Before it's too late, come to Jesus. Stop foolishly thinking that you are enough. Accept that you need the Lord just like I do and just like all God's people do. Acknowledge that. Give yourself up. Surrender to Him. Open your eyes to Him. To His great love shown at the cross. Do it now. Do it today. If you need help, get help. Me, talk to someone else. Don't wait. You can't read this passage and think that it's wise to be relaxed. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, you have been such a fountain of grace to each one of us. And how fitting it is that we run into your arms in love. But dear Lord, we know that in ourselves it is not our nature to run into your arms in love. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to do our own thing. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. We don't want someone else that we need. We want to be self-sufficient and independent. Please, O oh Lord, by the power of your Spirit, work in us. Open our eyes and show us how, though we think that we are enough, though we think that we are strong and smart and capable, that we are actually help us, O oh Lord, to realize that we can't feed ourselves. We need Jesus. O oh Lord, thank you now for the chance to come to the table that Jesus called his people to celebrate. To remind ourselves of what he did for us by dying on the cross, by bearing the burden of our guilt, by taking upon himself the justice that we deserved, that we might be relieved of it. As we come now, dear Lord, please refresh us and strengthen us and open our eyes to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.